Welcome to the Athens Collective. Welcome, one and all, to the Athens Collective. I am super excited for today's episode because it means I get to share one of my favorite stories of all time with you. Recently, I found out that this story was available in the public domain, and I got really excited about it because that means I could read it all for you. With that said, this story is one that is best read with the illustrations included, so you might want to find a physical copy to follow along with. Um, it's also quite a long story, so I'm actually going to be splitting it up into three long episodes. Three. Not long, but three episodes. <laughs> I hope that's okay. Um, I'm also... The, the author is a French author, so I apologize if I completely mess up his name, so I apologize beforehand. This story has brought me so much joy and so much change to my life. It's allowed me to reflect on myself as a person and has taught me so much, and I hope more than anything that you all will get as much from this story as I do every time I read it. So... Grab yourself a warm beverage, cozy up in some blankets, and maybe find someone to sit and enjoy the story with. I hope you enjoy it. The Little Prince, written by Antoine de Saint-Exploré. Once, when I was six years old, I saw a magnificent picture in a book called True Stories from Nature about the primeval forest. It was a picture of a boa constrictor in the act of swallowing an animal. Here is a copy of the drawing. In the book, it said, boa constrictors swallow their prey whole without chewing it. After that, they are not able to move, and they sleep through the six months that they need for digestion. I pondered deeply, then, over the adventures of the jungle, and after some work with a colored pencil, I succeeded in making my first drawing. My drawing number one. It looked something like this. I showed my masterpiece to the grown-ups and asked them whether the drawing frightened them, but they answered, Frightened? Why should anyone be frightened of a hat? My drawing was not a picture of a hat. It was a picture of a boa constrictor digesting an elephant, but since the grown-ups were not able to understand it, I made another drawing. I drew the inside of a boa constrictor so the grown-ups could see it clearly. They always need to have things explained. My drawing number two looked like this. The grown-up's response this time was to advise me to lay aside my drawings of boa constrictors, whether from the inside or the outside, 
and devote myself instead to geography, history, arithmetic, and grammar. That is why, at the age of six, I gave up what might have been a magnificent career as a painter. I had been disheartened by the failure of my drawing number one and my drawing number two. Grown-ups never understand anything by themselves, and it is tiresome for children to be always and forever explaining things to them. So then I chose another profession, and I learned to pilot airplanes. I have flown a little over all parts of the world, and it is true that geography has been very useful to me. At a glance, I can distinguish China from Arizona. If one gets lost in the night, such knowledge is valuable. In this course of this life, I have had a great many encounters with a great many people who have been concerned with matters of consequence. I have lived a great deal among grown-ups. I have seen them intimately, close at hand, and that hasn't much improved my opinion of them. Whenever I met one of them who seemed to me at all clear-sighted, I tried the experiment of showing them my drawing number one, which I have always kept. I would try to find out, so, if this was a person of true understanding, but whoever it was, he or she, would always say, that is a hat. And then I would never talk to that person about boa constrictors or, or primeval forests or stars. I would bring myself down to his level. I would talk to him about bridge and golf and politics and neckties, and the grown-up would be greatly pleased to have met such a sensible man. So I lived my life alone, without anyone that I could really talk to, until I had an accident with my plane in the desert of Sahara six years ago. Something was broken in my engine, and as I had with me neither a mechanic nor any passengers, I set myself to attempt the difficult repairs all alone. It was a question of life or death for me. I had scarcely enough drinking water to last a week. The first night, then, I went to sleep on the sand, a thousand miles from any human habitation. I was more isolated than a shipwrecked sailor on a raft in the middle of the ocean. Thus, you can imagine my amazement at sunrise when I was awakened by an odd little voice. It said, If you please, draw me a sheep. What? Draw me a sheep. I jumped to my feet, completely thunderstruck. I blinked my eyes hard. I looked carefully all around me, and I saw a most extraordinary small person who stood there examining me with great seriousness. Here you may see the best portrait that, later, I was able to make of him. But my drawing is certainly very much less charming than its model. That, however, is not my fault. The grown-ups discouraged me in my painter's career when I was six years old, and I never learned to draw anything except boas from the outside and boas from the inside. Now, I stared at this sudden apparition with my eyes fairly starting out of my head in astonishment. Remember, I had crashed in the desert a thousand miles from my inhabited re region, and yet my little man seemed neither to be straying uncertainly among the sands nor to be fainting, fainting from fatigue or hunger or thirst or fear. Nothing about him gave any suggestion of a child lost in the middle of a desert a thousand miles from 
any human habitation. When I was last able to speak, I said to him, But what are you doing here? And in answer, he repeated very slowly, as if he were speaking of a matter of great consequence. If you please, draw me a sheep. When a mystery is too overpowering, one dare not disobey. Absurd as it might seem to me, a thousand miles from any human habitation and in danger of death, I took out my pocket and a sheet of paper and my fountain pen. But then I remembered how my studies had been concentrated on geography, history, arithmetic, and grammar. And I told the little chap, a little crossly too, that I did not know how to draw. He answered me, That doesn't matter. Draw me a sheep. But I had never drawn a sheep, so I drew for him one of the two pictures I had drawn so often. It was that of the bow constrictor from the outside, and I was astonished to hear the fellow greet with it. No, no, no. I don't want an elephant inside a boa constrictor. A boa constrictor is a very dangerous creature, and an elephant is very cumbersome. Where I live, everything is very small. What I need is a sheep. Draw me a sheep. So then I made a drawing. He looked at it carefully, then he said, No, a sheep is already very sickly. Make me another. So I made another sheep. My friend smiled gently and indulgently. You see yourself, he said. This is not a sheep. This is a ram. It has horns. So then I did my drawing over once more, but it was rejected too, just like the others. This one is too old. I want a sheep that will live a long time. By this time, my patience was exhausted because I was in a hurry to start taking my engine apart. So I tossed off this drawing and I threw out an explanation with it. This is only his box. The sheep you asked for is inside. I was very surprised to see a light break over the face of my young judge. That is exactly the way I wanted it. Do you think that this sheep will have to have a great deal of grass? Why? Because where I live, everything is very small. There, there will surely be enough grass for him, I said. It is a very small sheep that I have given you. He bent his head over the drawing. Not so small that. Look, he has gone to sleep. And that is how I made the acquaintance of the little prince. It took me a long time to learn where he came from. The little prince, who asked me so many questions, never seemed to hear the ones I asked him. It was from words dropped by chance that, little by little, everything was revealed to me. The first time he saw my airplane, for instance, I shall not draw my airplane, that would be much too complicated for me. He asked me, what is that object? That is not an object, it flies, it is an airplane, it is my airplane. And I was proud to have him learn that I could fly. He cried out then, what? You dropped down from the sky? Yes, I answered modestly. Oh, that is funny and the little prince broke into a lovely peal of laughter, which irritated me very much. I like my misfortunes to be ser taken seriously. Then he added, So you, too, come from the sky. Which is your planet? At that moment, I caught a gleam of light in the impenetrable mystery of this 
of his presence, and I demanded abruptly, Do you come from another planet? But he did not reply. He tossed his head gently without taking his eyes from my plane. It is true that on that you can't have come from very far away. And he sank into a reverie, which lasted a long time. Then, taking my sheep out of his pocket, he buried himself in the contemplation of his treasure. You can imagine how my curiosity was aroused by this half-confidence about the other planets. I made a great effort, therefore, to find out more on this subject. My little man, where do you come from? What is this where I live of which you speak? Where do you want to take your sheep? After a small reflective silence, he answered, The thing that is so good about the box you have given me is that at night he can use it as his house. That is so. And if you are good, I will give you a string too so that you can tie him during the day and post and a post to tie him to. But the little prince seemed shocked by this offer. Tie him? What a queer idea. But if you don't tie him, I said, he will wander off somewhere and get lost. My friend broke into another peal of laughter. But where do you think he would go? Anywhere, straight ahead of him. Then the prince said earnestly, That doesn't matter. Where I live, everything is so small. And with, perhaps, a hint of sadness, he added, Straight ahead of him, nobody can go very far. I had thus learned a second fact of great importance. This was that the planet the little prince came from was scarcely larger than a house. But that had not really surprised me much. I knew very well that in addition to the great planets, such as the Earth, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, to which we have given names, there are also hundreds of others, some which are so small that one has a hard time seeing them through the telescope. When an astronomer discovers one of these, he does not give it a name, but only a number. He might call it, for example, Asteroid 325. I have a serious reason to believe that the planet from which the little prince came is the asteroid known as B612. This asteroid has only once been seen through with the telescope. That was by a Turkish astronomer in 1901. On making his discovery, the astronomer had presented it to the International Astronomical Congress in a great demonstration, but he was in Turkish costume, and so nobody would believe what he said. Grown-ups are like that. Fortunately, however, for the reputation of asteroid B612, a Turkish dictator made a law that his subject, under pain of death, should change to European costume. So, in 1920, the astronomer gave his demonstration all over again, dressed with impressive style and elegance, and this time everybody accepted his report. If I have told you these details about the asteroid and made a note of its number for you, it is on account of the grown-ups and their ways. When you tell them that you have made a new friend, they never ask you about any of the essential matters. They never say to you, what does his voice sound like? What game does he love best? Does he collect butterflies? 
Instead, they demand, how old is he? How many brothers has he? How much does he weigh? How much money does his father make? Only from these figures do they think they have learned anything about him. If you were to say to the grown-ups, I saw a beautiful house made of rosy brick with geraniums in the windows and doves on the roof, they would not be able to sit, get any idea of the house at all. You would have to say to them, I saw a house that cost $20,000. Then they would ex exclaim, Oh, what a pretty house that is. Just so, you might say to them, the proof that the little prince existed is that he was charming, and that he laughed, and that he was looking for a sheep. If anybody wants a sheep, that is proof that he exists. And what a good would it do to tell them that? They would shrug their shoulders and treat you like a child, but if you said to them, the planet he came from is asteroid B612, then they would be convinced and leave you in peace from their questions. They are like that. One must not hold it against them. Children should always show great forbearance toward grown-up people, but certainly, for those of us who understand life, figures are a matter of indifference. I should have liked to begin this story in the fashion of the fairy tales. I should have liked to say, once upon a time there was a little prince who lived on a planet that was scarcely any bigger than himself, and who had need of a sheep. To those who understand life, that would have given a much greater air to the truth of my story, for I do not want anyone to read my book carelessly. I have suffered too much grief in setting down these memories. Six years have already passed since my friend went away from me with his sheep. If I try to describe him here, it is to make sure that I shall not forget him. To forget a friend is sad. Not everyone has had a friend, and if I forget him, I may become like the grown-ups who are no longer interested in anything but figures. It is for that purpose, again, that I have brought a box of paints and some pencils. It is hard to take up drawing again at my age, when I have never made any pictures except those of a boa constrictor from the outside and the boa constrictor from the inside since I was six. I shall certainly try to make my portraits as true to life as possible, but I am not at all sure of success. One drawing goes along all right, and another has no resemblance to its subject. I make some errors, too, in the little prince's height. In one place he is too tall and in another too short. And I feel some doubts about the color of his costume, so I fumble along the best as I can. Now good, now bad and I hope generally fair to middling. In certain, more important details, I shall make mistakes also. But that is something that will not be my fault. My friend never explained anything to me. He thought, perhaps, that I was like himself. But I, alas, do not know how to see sheep through the walls of boxes. Perhaps I am little like the grown-ups. I have had to grow old." As each day passed, I would learn in our talk something about the little prince's planet. His departure from it, his journey, the information would come very slowly, as it might chance to fall from his thoughts. It was in this way that I heard, on the third day, about the catastrophe of the baobabs. This time, once more, I had the sheep to thank for it, for the little prince asked me abruptly, as if seized by a grave doubt, is it true? 
Isn't it that sheep eat little bushes? Yes, that is true. Ah, I'm glad. I did not understand why it was so important that the sheep should eat little bushes, but the prince added, Then it follows that they also eat baobabs. I pointed out to the little prince that baobabs were not little bushes, but, on the contrary, trees as big as castles, and that even if he took a whole herd of elephants away with him, the herd would not eat up one single baobab. The idea of the herd of elephants made the little prince laugh. We would have to put them one on top of the other, he said. But he made a wise comment. Before they grow so big, the baobab start out by being little. That is strictly correct, I said. But why do you want the sheep to eat the little baobabs? He answered me at once. Oh, come, come, as if he were speaking of something that was self-evident. And I was obliged to make a great mental effort to solve this problem without any assistance. Indeed, as I had learned, there were on the planet where the little prince lived, as on all planets, good plants and bad plants. In consequence, there were good sets of seeds from good plants and bad seeds from bad plants. But seeds are invisible. They sleep deep in the heart of the earth's darkness until someone among them is seized with a desire to awaken. Then this little seed will stretch itself and begin, timidly at first, to push a charming little spring of inoffensively upward toward the sun. If it is only a sprout of radish or the sprig of a rosebush, one would let it grow whether it might, wherever it might wish. But when it is a bad plant, one must destroy it as soon as possible, the very instant that one recognizes it. Now, there were some terrible seeds on the planet that was the home of the little prince, and these were the seeds of the baobab. The soil of that planet was infested with them, a baobab is something you will never, ever be able to get rid of if you attend to it too late. It spreads over the entire planet. It bores clear through it with its roots. And if the planet is too small and the baobabs are too many, they split it in pieces. It is a question of discipline, the little prince said to me later on. When you've finished your own toilet in the morning, then it is time to attend to the toilet of your planet, just so. With the greatest of care, you must see to it that you pull up regularly all the baobabs at the very first moment when they can be distinguished from the rose bushes which they resemble, which they resemble so closely in their earliest youth. It is very tedious work, the little prince added, but very easy. And one day he told me, you ought to make a beautiful drawing so that the children where you live can see exactly how all this is. That would be very useful to them if they were to travel some day. Sometimes, he added, there is no harm in putting off a piece of work until another day, but when it is a matter of baobabs, that always means a catastrophe. I knew a planet that was inhabited by a lazy man. He neglected the three little bushes. So, as the little prince described it to me, I have made a drawing of that planet. I do not much like to take the tone of a moralist, but the danger of the baobabs is so little understood, and such considerable risks would be run by anyone who might get lost on an asteroid, that for once I am breaking through my reserve. Children, I say plainly, watch out for the baobabs.
My friend, like myself, have been skirting this danger for a long time without ever knowing it. And so it is for them that I have worked so hard over this drawing. The lesson which I pass on by this means is worth all the trouble it has cost me. Perhaps you will ask me, why are there no other drawings in this book as magnificent and impressive as this drawing of the Baobabs? The reply is simple. I have tried, but with the others I have not yet been successful. When I made the drawing of the Baobabs, I was carried beyond myself by the inspiring force of urgent necessity. Oh, little prince, bit by bit I came to understand the secrets of your sad little life. For a long time, you had found your only entertainment in the quiet pleasure of looking at the sunset. I learned that new detail on the morning of the fourth day when you said to me, I'm very fond of sunsets. Come, let us go look at the sunset now. But we must wait, I said. Wait for what? For the sunset. We must wait until it is time. At first you seemed to be very much surprised, and then you laughed to yourself. You said to me, I am always thinking that I am at home. Just so, everyone knows that when it is noon in the United States, the sun is setting over France. If you could fly to France in one minute, you could go straight to the sunset right from noon. Unfortunately, France is too far away for that. But on your tiny planet, my little prince, all you need do is move your chair a few steps, and you can see the day end and the twilight falling wherever you like. One day, you said to me, I saw the sunset 44 times. And a little later, you added, You know, one loves the sunsets when one is so sad. Were you so sad then? I asked, on the day of the 44 sunsets. But the little prince made no reply. On the fifth day again, as always, it was thanks to the sheep the secret of the little prince's life was revealed to me. Abruptly, without anything leading up to it, as if the question had been born of a long and silent meditation on his problem, he demanded, A sheep, if it eats little bushes, does it eat flowers too? A sheep, I answered, eats anything it finds in its reach. Even flowers that have thorns? Yes, even flowers that have thorns. Then the thorns, what use are they? I did not know. At that moment, I was very busy trying to unscrew a bolt that had gotten stuck in my engine. I was very much worried, for it was becoming clear to me that the breakdown of my plane was extremely serious, and I had so little drinking water left that I had to fear for the worst. The thorns, what use are they? The little prince never let go of a question once he asked it. As for me, I was upset over that bolt, and I answered with the first thing that came into my head. The thorns are of no use at all. Flowers have thorns just for spite. Oh! There was a moment of complete silence, then the little prince flashed back at me, with a kind of resentfulness. I don't believe you! Flowers are weak creatures. They are naive. They reassure themselves as best they can. They believe that their thorns are terrible weapons. I did not answer. At that instant, I was saying to myself, 
If this bolt still won't turn, I am going to knock it out with the hammer. Again, the little prince disturbed my thoughts. And you actually believe that the flowers... Oh no, I cried. No, no, no. I don't believe anything. I answered you with the first thing that came into my head. Don't you see? I'm very busy with matters of consequence. He stared at me, thunderstruck. Matters of consequence? He looked at me there, with my hammer in my hand, my fingers black with engine grease bending down over an object which seemed to him extremely ugly. You talk just like the grown-ups. That made me a little ashamed, but he went on relentlessly. You mix up everything together. You confuse everything. He was really very angry. He tossed his golden curls in the breeze. I know a planet where there is a certain red-faced gentleman. He has never smelt a flower. He has never looked at a star. He has never loved anyone. He has never done anything in his life but add up figures. And all day he says over and over, just like you, I am busy with matters of consequence. And that makes him swell up with pride. But he is not a man. He is a mushroom. A what? A mushroom? The little prince was now white with rage. The flowers have been growing thorns for millions of years. For millions of years, the sheep have been eating them just the same. And it is not a matter of consequence to try to understand why the flowers go to so much trouble to grow thorns, which are never of any use to them? Is the warfare between the sheep and the flowers not important? Is this not of more consequence than a fat, red-faced gentleman's sums? And if I know, I myself, one flower which is unique in the world, which grows nowhere but on my planet, but which one little sheep can destroy in a single bite some morning without even noticing what he is doing? Oh, you think that is not important? His face turned from white to red as he continued. If someone loves a flower, of which just one single blossom grows in all the millions and millions of stars, it is enough to make him happy just to look at the stars. He can say to himself somewhere, my flower is there. But if the sheep eats the flower, in one moment all his stars will be darkened. And do you think that is not important? He could not say anything anymore. His words were choked by sobbing. The night had fallen. I had let my tools drop my from my hands. Of what moment now was my hammer, my bolt, or thirst, or death? On one star, one planet, my planet, the earth, there was a little prince to be comforted. I took him in my arms and rocked him. I said to him, The flower that you love is not in danger. I will draw a muzzle for your sheep. I will draw you a railing to put around your flower. I will... I did not know what to say to him. I felt awkward and blundering. I did not know how I could reach him, where I could overtake him, and go on hand in hand with him once more. It is such a secret place, the land of tears. I soon learned to know this flower better. On the little princess planet, the flowers had always been very simple. They had only one ring of petals. They took no room up at all. They were a trouble to nobody. One morning, they would appear in the grass, and by night, they would have faded peacefully away. 
but one day, from a scene blown from no one knew where, a new flower had come up, and the little prince had watched very closely over this small sprout, which was not like any other small sprouts on his planet. It might, you see, have been a new kind of baobab. The shrub soon stopped growing and became to get ready to produce a flower. The little prince who was present at the first appearance of a huge bud felt at once that some sort of miraculous apparition must emerge from it. But the flower was not satisfied to complete the preparations for her beauty in the shelter of her green chamber. She chose her colors with the greatest care. She dressed herself slowly. She adjusted her petals one by one. She did not wish to go out into the world all rumpled, like the field poppies. It was only in her full radiance of her beauty that she was that she wished to appear. Oh, yes. She was a coquettish teak creature, and her mysterious adornment lasted for days and days. Then, one morning, exactly at sunrise, see, she suddenly showed herself. And after working on with all this painstaking precision, she yawned and said, Ah, oh, I am scarcely awake. I beg that you will excuse me. My petals are still all disarranged. But the little prince could not restrain his admiration. Oh, how beautiful you are. Am I not? The flower responded sweetly. And I was born at the same moment as the sun. The little prince could guess easily enough that she was not any too modest, but how moving and how exciting she was. I think it is time for breakfast, she added an instant later, if you would have the kindness to think of my needs. And the little prince, completely abashed, went to look for a sprinkling can of water, so he tended to the flower. So too, she began very quickly to torment him with her vanity, which was, if the truth be known, a little difficult to deal with. One day, for instance, when she was speaking of her forest thorns, she said to the little prince, Let the tigers come with their claws. There are no tigers on my planet, the little prince objected. And anyway, tigers do not eat weeds. I am not a weed, the flower replied sweetly. Please excuse me. I am not at all afraid of tigers, she went on, but I have a horror of drafts. I suppose you wouldn't have a screen for me. A horror of drafts? That is bad luck for a plant, remarked the little prince and added to himself. This flower is a very complex creature. At night, I want you to put me under a glass globe. It is very cold where you live, in the place I come from. But she interrupted herself at that point. She had come in the form of a seed. She could not have known anything of any other worlds. Embarrassed over having let herself be caught on the verge of such a naive untruth, she coughed two or three times in order to put the pr little prince in the wrong. The screen? I was just going to go look for it when you spoke to me. Then she forced her cough a little more so that he should suffer from remorse just the same. So the little prince, in spite of all the good will that was inseparable, from his love, had soon come to doubt her. He had taken seriously words which were without importance, and it made him very unhappy. I ought not to have listened to her, he confided to me one day. One never ought to listen to the flowers. 
One should simply look at them and breathe their fragrance. Mine perfumed all my planet, but I did not know how to take pleasure in all her grace. This tale of claws, which disturbed me so much, should only have filled my heart with tenderness and pity. As he continued his confidences, The fact is that I did not know how to understand anything. I ought to have judged by deeds and not by words. She cast her fragrance and her radiance over me. I ought never to have run away from her. I ought to have guessed all the affection that lay behind her poor little stratums. Flowers are so inconsistent, but I was too young to know how to love her. I believe that for his escape, he took advantage of the migration of a flock of wild birds. On the morning of his departure, he put his planet in perfect order. He carefully cleaned out his active volcanoes. He possessed two active volcanoes, and they were very convenient for heating his breakfast in the morning. He also had one volcano that was extinct, but, as he said, one never knows. So he cleaned out the extinct volcano, too. If they are all well cleaned out, volcanoes burn slowly and steadily without any eruptions. Volcanic eruptions are like fires in a chimney. On our world, we are obviously much too small to clean out our volcanoes. That is why they bring no end of trouble upon us. The little prince also pulled up with a certain sense of dejection that last the little shoots of the baobabs. He believed that he would never want to return. But on this last morning, all these familiar tasks seemed very precious to him, and when he watered the flower for the last time, and prepared to place her under the shelter of her glass globe, he realized that he was very close to tears. Goodbye, he said to the flower, but she made no answer. Goodbye, he said again. The flower coughed, but it was not because she had a cold. I have been silly, she said to him, at last. I ask your forgiveness. Try to be happy. He was surprised by this absence of reproaches. He stood there, all bewildered, the glass globe held arrested in midair. He did not understand this quiet sweetness. Of course I love you, the flower said to him. It is my fault that you have known it all the while. That is of no importance. But you, you have been just as foolish as I. Try to be happy. Let the glass globe be. I don't want it anymore. But the wind. My cold is not so bad as all that. The cool night air will do me good. I am a flower. But the animals. Well... I must endure the presence of two or three caterpillars if I wish to become acquainted with the butterflies. It seems that they are very beautiful. And if not the butterflies and the caterpillars, who will call upon me? You will be far away, as for the large animals. I'm not at all afraid of any of them. I have my claws. And naively, she showed her four thorns. Then she added, Don't linger like this. You have, you have decided to go. Now go. For she did not want him to see her crying. She was such a proud flower. 
I truly do hope that you all love this story as much as I do, and apologies for some of the missteps and word stumbles, um, but for now, we'll leave it there, and, um, until next time, I will be sending love over air. I will see you all next week. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Athens Collective. For more content, you can go to Instagram at the Athens Collective, and you may submit collaboration ideas or your own stories to the Athens Collective.